couple hundred years ago in England, followers of Jesus Christ, uh, the Puritans, uh, spent a lot of time writing and thinking about the greatness of God and his son, Jesus Christ. And they seem to have a very clear understanding of what life was really like in our broken world. They understood clearly what the Bible teaches in that God created everything that is, and when he finished created, creating, Genesis 2, 4, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Then sin entered, and the curse came, and with it, death And we've been apart from paradise ever since. And they would teach their children, and I've told you before about the uh, Puritan uh, primer. They teach their children the alphabet, and I I will never forget their little line for the letter A. A is for Adam. In Adam, all die. And uh, they were teaching their children from the earliest age the truth about the results of sin And this only set them up for the glory of a Savior who saves us from our sin and gives us a future and a hope. None know ahead of time what our death is going to be like or what circumstances we will go through. But all of us know ahead of time that we will die. While we do not know how we will die, we know that we will die, and we know that If things go according to usual, many of us will face disease and an illness that will first weaken us, and then it will take our lives. Several years ago, when he and Marsha were in Ethiopia, Stephen Strauss and Marsha were supported by Calvary Baptist Church. They were one of our global partners. He became a good friend of mine. I love Stephen Marsha. I spent the summer of 2009 in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia with Stephen. He was teaching at the Graduate School of Theology, and I was teaching at the uh, Theological College for seven weeks during the rainy season to give the faculty a respite. And at a former ministry, he preached uh, my installation service. And it wasn't too many weeks after the service was over, he called me and he says, Eric, I had a pain in my abdomen. And I went to the doctor. I have pancreatic cancer. I said, oh, Steve, what's up? Well, we're going to have the Whipple procedure and then fight this as far as we can. And I tracked with him. The providence that God had ordained for him was that uh, in 12 short months, he was gone and went to be with the Lord. It weakened him. He was at the time on the faculty at Dallas Seminary teaching uh, in missions. Daryl Bach, a faculty colleague at Dallas, has written, perhaps nothing is so fearful for people to face than disease and death. We feel most threatened when our body starts to work against us and our mortality becomes painfully evident. End of quote. Maybe you're here this morning grappling with disease, ongoing cancer, chronic pain, multiple sclerosis, kidney function. I'm glad you're here. Uh, This passage that is before us this morning 
screams out loud in a real sweet way, Jesus loves people who face illness, people who are sick. This passage will help us with how life actually is in a broken world. Not everyone suffers well who goes through suffering. Some face physical decline and death, and not only does it look like their bodies are being dismantled, but if you get close to them, it can look like their faith is being dismantled as well. One of the questions that I've asked myself this week is one I want to ask you, are you prepared now to face your demise physically? How do you do that? Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56 will indeed help us with that this morning. It'll teach us how. How is it possible to suffer well? If you know Christ as your Savior, he cares for us and holds us fast. As we look through this window and see these miracles of Christ, we'll see how to suffer as well, and we will see what real kingdom faith looks like worked out in a broken world. Come with me to Luke 8, verses 40 through 56. I want to read you this passage this morning. This comes right after that passage that we looked at last week in the liberation of the man from Gerasenes. Luke 8, 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out for me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, Someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called the child, 
saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, in this story, there are two primary figures. There's the woman with the issue of blood, who as a result of that is an outcast and is unclean. And as a result of that, as well, is poor because she had spent the last 12 years burning up her income trying to get better. By the way, Luke is a doctor. It's interesting how he reports this. And he's straightforward and honest about the doctor's inability to wrap their mind around what was going on and then help her. But there's another gospel writer in a parallel passage that takes a little more of a disparaging charge against doctors who didn't help this woman and took advantage of her. It's interesting to watch that. Twelve years is involved here. Twelve years first for this pitiful woman whose health disastrously was in bad shape. She struggled. She spent all her money the last 12 years. It's been a different 12 years for Jarius. Jarius has been the leader of the synagogue around the Capernaum area. Jarius has been a part of a synagogue where Jesus in Luke chapter 4 dealt with the man with the evil spirit in an earlier miracle that we looked at. There will be no evil in God's kingdom. That's what you see through that window. But then in chapter 7, the centurion's servant was ill. In chapter 7 and verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. It very well could be, and probably is, that in this party of Jewish leaders was Jairus. But he had no idea what he was going to face in a sudden illness in his 12-year-old daughter, rather than being 12 years of carnage like for this woman. It had been 12 years of glory. Now, if God has given you the privilege to be the father of a daughter, he's given you a great privilege. God gave us two boys, our first two boys. Mandy, the Lord gave us conception, and we were anticipating our third child. And I said to myself, you know, I just, I would love to have another boy. We've had so much fun, and we, it's been so great. Let's just have another boy. And I'm used to boys. This is going to be great. We'll just have a house full. We'll just build the team, and we'll make it. Well, and... W- we are at a season of our life where when we were in the child birthing years, they weren't doing uh, ultrasounds every four minutes like they do now in uh, uh, gestation. But um, uh, so along the way, we did discern that probably it looked like it's going to be a little girl. I was trying to figure out how I should respond to this. Oh, what I would have missed if God had not given me a little girl. There's something glorious about being the dad of a little girl. When she stuck her head out, she looked exactly like, her cheekbones are just exactly like Andy and her four sisters. And I thought, that's a girl. And indeed it was. And Abby has been an unusual joy to me and being her dad. 
Uh, if you're close to your daughter, you can understand where Jarius is as he is in this terrible moment where his 12-year-old daughter is very sick. She's threatened. She may die. So you have here two desperate people. They're desperate for two other reasons. By the way, do you understand that the world is full of desperate people? And we are all desperate for God's grace, but it's actually a wonderful position to be in because God is gracious and he loves to come around desperate people. In fact, desperate, needy people often have a heart that is more responsive to God than arrogant, feigning to be autonomous, I run my own life people who uh, have less of a conscious sense of need of things. These people are desperate. What's interesting is their approach to Jesus is completely different. I really admire this Jairus. I think it's a function of the love he had for his daughter. Unashamedly, unabashedly, openly in public, he cries out, he implores Jesus while down on his knees before him, asking Jesus, please come to my house and face my daughter. She's sick unto death. There's nothing hidden about him. Where the woman... She's kind of picking her spots and, and getting through the crowd up there close, and then she's going to touch the hem of his garment. And as soon as she does, she is healed. But God in Christ didn't let her be hidden for long because then, of course, she's smoked out by Jesus. So it's a fascinating story. Now, everybody's going to die. Many of us will die through a disease process. Will it be proved in that process that we had, and this is the window through which we look and see these miracles, will it be proved in that process that we had that durable kingdom faith that served us well in the midst of our suffering? What kind of faith are we developing here at Calvary Baptist Church? So in that sense, let's take a run at this question. Let's call it life's great wager. Shall we be all in? Now leave it to a Baptist preacher to use a poker metaphor for the title of the question. You know, Shall we be all in? But rather, I'm thinking not about poker, but about Blaise Pascal, who in his little book, Pences, a French word for thoughts, has a chapter on the necessity of the wager discussing the risk of faith. Let's be honest about faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. And to use Haddon Robinson's trilogy, along the way then, we are called to trust him when we cannot trace him and what he's doing. We're called to step where we cannot see. We're called to undergo what we do not understand. That's the life of faith. And it's the durable life of kingdom faith that perseveres through all of it even wrenching circumstances like disease and death. That's what's in this passage. Three assertions. Assertion number one, there is nothing like sickness to call us out into the open with Jesus. Look at verses 42 and 43. Immediately, Jarius is out in the open with his desperation and with his thought and trust that Jesus Christ could meet his need. 
How we handle loss and the loss of our health and the loss of our capacity says a lot about us. Sickness is very revealing. Jairus is desperate and comes to the Lord. This woman is desperate and she comes to the Lord as well. Jairus is in the open with abandon, throwing his hope upon Jesus Christ. Not the woman. She's kind of demure, uh, being very careful. Since the garden, we've been hiding from God. And she was trying to be hidden and yet trying to access the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And Jesus wouldn't let her be hidden. By the way, one of the most foolish things we can do in life is try to hide from Jesus. <laughs> and it may surprise you to know that uh, some try to hide from Jesus in places like this. Because it looks as if we're all in good stead. But Jesus wouldn't let this woman hide. But it was for her own good that he calls her out in the open. Uh, this woman has a little bit of a superstitious faith. And I love this. I love this because Jesus met her right where she was. Did she believe in Jesus? Yes. Did she believe Jesus could help? Yes. Was her faith all well-formed and in all the right categories? Absolutely not. In fact, she has kind of a superstitious uh, magical faith view. I'll just, you know, Jesus is magic. I'll just get around him and, and touch, touch his garments and then I'll be healed. Now Jesus met her right where she was. He didn't give her a lecture on theology. He didn't talk to her about how, boy, you, you're really under the pile in development. Will you please straighten up and believe in the right way? No, he met her right where she was and he kept dealing with her. Why did he embarrass her by calling her out? No, he was helping her in ways she didn't even understand because she's a social outcast. She is poor and feels less than others. She is unclean because of the issue of blood and has not been to worship in 12 years because she's been unclean and she was an outcast and Jesus called her out into the open to preserve a future for her where everybody would know she's clean and everybody would know she's fine and everybody could reintegrate her back into society so he called her out in the open to help her and he met her right where she was and took that superstitious faith and said, no, you have put your faith in me, and that faith in me has made you whole. It has saved you. That's the word that he uses in um, verse 48. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Now notice where she goes afterwards. She leaves in peace. Don't let that, don't miss that word. Because if anything did was the opposite of her experience the last 12 years. It was peace. She's had no peace. But she gets it now. And there is birthed in her heart a peace that she couldn't have had apart from Jesus. Now, I love this. Uh, you know, in a former generation, this is the work of Christ. He calls to us and invites us to himself all the time. We used to sing a song in a former generation. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. He's calling for us. And he called for that woman. 
And she felt called out. And she just had a little bit of faith, and it was all messed up. But that little gesture, Christ met her right where she was and brought her along. Is Jesus calling you out this morning? You say, Eric, I don't understand it all. Jesus will meet you right where you are and walk forward. And that woman left in peace. Now, please understand, it is not a novel insight or a, a, an astonishing newsflash to tell you that we are not experiencing levels of peace in our culture and in our world at this moment. It is full of ferment and high anxiety and stress, and Jesus calls us out to himself. And in coming to him, we come to peace. Are you facing a hard thing? Are you facing a hard thing with a loved one? Jesus calls us out to his peace. Has God brought you here this morning to be called out by the Spirit of God to come and place your faith in Christ? To be all in with him, with a kingdom faith that will endure Sickness calls us out. It asks us, how serious were you about those songs you sang that Jason led us in this morning? I mean, do you, do you believe what you sang and said you believe? Uh, do you or do you not? Do you believe the gospel when all is well? Oh, yes, I do. I love Jesus. Well, do you believe the gospel when all is not well? And you are not well. Normal life in a broken world forces us to reckon with what we say we believe. Ours is not the first generation to ask, is it true? I mean, is it really worth it? Life in a broken world with injustice, pride, seeming unanswered prayer, suffering, loss, sickness, and death will bring us to ask, what gives does Jesus matter? Is it really true? In preparing for Men of Calvary this spring, I had one thoughtful brother whom I love reach out to me and say, hey, look, here's what I think you should run after. You should run after seven questions that men are asking, and here's the first one that you should answer. Does God actually exist? He said, I have crazy thoughts in the middle of my doubts. You know what? He said, what's wrong with that guy? Well, that guy's just a normal follower of Jesus, living in a broken world, asking, trying to integrate what we know to be true about God with what we experience as we go through life. Jairus was all in with Jesus. And then his world got turned upside down. There's nothing like sickness to call us out into the open with Jesus, and it'll show the nature of our faith. Second assertion, our faith in Christ is a risk we take that brings consolation and dilemmas. Look at verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. By the way, that's framed in a tense, which is past action with abiding, unalterable results. And then uh, he, he goes on. Please notice how many times her death is alluded to. Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. 
very dead. You know, she, she's dead. That, that text is bringing us back to that. But, but that's going to change with Jesus. That's going to change. What are we going on in following Jesus? We have hung our future and hung our fortunes on the promise of God in Jesus Christ and the integrity of God who levied the promise. This passage is full of tension. There's faith and there's fear. It's the classic battle. Verse 47, the woman comes trembling. Verse 50, Jesus says, do not weep for she is not dead, but, but sleeping. I'm, I'm sorry, verse 50 says, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Again, the wrestling match between fear and faith. Really, there's two kinds of faith, childlike faith, which Jesus commends and says that nobody comes into the kingdom except that simple trust as a child. Let's call that Psalm 23 faith. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But then there's, let's call it carbide tip faith. It's Psalm 22 faith. It's I'm going to believe no matter what. Some childlike faith evaporates in the midst of struggle. It's good for a while, but as soon as the wheels begin to fall off, and in a broken world, the wheels begin to fall off, do they not? The rain comes down and the floods come up and beat upon the house. That was for both the just and the unjust in Christ's illustration. But the carbide tip faith that endures, tenaciously sticks at it, that's Psalm 22 faith. I had a friend who battled breast cancer for 12 years, and I was next to her cheering her on and urging her forward and reminding her of hope. And there came a day when the Lord appointed her to go to heaven after a long, courageous battle. I was talking to her as she was in the midst of the battle, and I said, Sue, tell me, what verses in the Bible did God use to encourage you the most in the middle of this? She stunned me. And at first I thought, oh, no, she's despairing. But then I started thinking about it. She said this. You know, Eric, it's Psalm 22. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus said that from the cross. The psalmist said it in Psalm 22 in that circumstance. The affirmation simultaneously that God exists and God rules, and I don't understand what God is taking me through, but I'm sticking with God. That's what Psalm 22 says. And I love, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But I know the Lord is my shepherd, and I've been in circumstances where I felt like I was in want. So I slipped over from, so I regressed to that says from Psalm 23 to Psalm 22. But rather than being faith that is abandoned, it's faith that matures and grows up and withstands the moment and perseveres because of who we know God to be. And we ultimately give him all of our trust. Psalm 22 faith is deeper and more mysterious, is it not? Is that the kind of faith we're growing here? Carbide tip faith that just tenaciously stays at it. 
Phil Yancey said in his book, Disappointed with God, the kind of faith God values seems to develop best when everything fuzzes over. When God stays silent. When the fog rolls in, childlike trust may not survive when the miracle does not come, when the urgent prayer gets no answer, when a dense gray mist obscures any sign of God's concern, such times call for something more, and I will use the musty word fidelity for that hang on at any cost faith. Faithful. Is there faith like that being grown up here at Calvary Baptist Church? You see, here's Jarius who throws himself on Jesus. Let's grade him. You say, I'll tell you what, that's exactly what you should do in a tough circumstance. You throw yourself on Jesus. And then Jarius has a delight of having a sense, hey, wait a minute, the pendulum of God's care is swinging my way. This is working out good. Jesus took up this offer and he starts to my house. Then, bam, the ambulance has a wreck. The very hope that we had, why, It's marooned. An unclean woman just touched Jesus. Now, for a kosher leader of the synagogue, he had a dilemma. Was he going to let Jesus in the house afterwards? And he's no doubt thinking, wait a minute, I don't want you to be held up, Jesus. Don't stop for a sermon. Get to my house. Come on. And then to receive those words. Hey, quit troubling him. Your daughter is dead. With such force, those words must have hit. Because here's Jarius, who's put all these chips in. I'm counting on Jesus. But it looks like it's not going well. This is not going the right way. Maybe you're here this morning, you're facing a dilemma. You put all your chips in with Jesus. And it doesn't look like it's turning out like you want it to. What's going on? Please read through the story clear to the end because it had a good ending, did it not? Was she dead? Absolutely, she was dead. In fact, the word dead is used repeatedly to remind us of what's going on. You see, carbide tip faith just keeps going. Lesser childlike faith drops out. Is Christ our treasure as long as we have what we want Is he also our treasure when we cannot see what we would like to see? Eddie Dobson wrote a book called Seeing Through the Fog. Eddie Dobson was the editor of Fundamentalist Journal and the former generation when Jerry Falwell started that in the 80s. And then he left Liberty Mountain and he went to Grand Rapids and he pastored a great church, Calvary Church, in a wonderful way for a number of years and was stricken with ALS. And on his way down, he wrote a book. The book was entitled, and it's an apt title, Seeing Through the Fog. It's so apropos. Jesus is with us in the fog. There was a fog that came over Jairus' vision of Jesus. I'll tell you what, if somebody was heading to my house to help my daughter, I would have gotten upset with that lady. Jesus, what do you, no, you've got someplace else to go. What's wrong with you? Come on, let's get on with this. But Jesus is with us in the fog. And some glad morning, that fog is going to lift for good, Phil Yancey said. But I think it's important for us to talk to each other honestly and say that that fog is not going to lift till then. It is now that we see through a glass 
darkly. Get what I mean about childlike faith and dilemmas? Let's get the carbide tips on. There's no other hope outside of Christ. Where are we going to go? We're with Peter, John 6, 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You are the words of eternal life. It's not like Jairus could say, okay, Jesus, no problem. You're a two-bit Savior. I'm just going to go down the road and pick me up another Savior. Where is he going to go? There's no place else to go. But in Christ, we find one who is sufficient. You getting the idea behind what Lisa read this morning? The older I get, the more I appreciate what the Apostle Paul said. I fought a good fight. Any of you tired in the fight this morning? And it is a fight. That's F-I-G-H-T. Our little granddaughter's learning how to read. So now she talks in spelling. Hey, let's go make a P-O-S-T-E-R. It's important to stop here and say, the Christian life is an F-I-G-H-T. And if you're in the F-I-G-H-T this morning and you're tired or you're hurting, and you feel like you've taken on body blows. Christ is with us. And this is a part of it as we are on our way home. If we in this life only have hope, we are of all men most to be pitied. But our hope is in the world to come. I've run the race. I just heard somebody, I, it escapes me right now who it is, but oh, they're running the half marathon this morning. Yes, chain of faith. Paul said, I've run the race. By the way, have you noticed that the Christian life is not a 10-yard dash? It's a marathon. You know what happens mile 17 to 22? Everybody wants to quit. Your gut's hurt. You've asked yourself, what in the world am I doing and why am I doing this? They all want to quit. I'll tell you what. The last three miles is glorious. And every step gets better. I've kept the faith. What about that? We stumbled onto a time in evangelical faith in America where we are celebrating deconversion stories that are passed around on social media. You know what Paul celebrated? I have kept and I promise in a broken world, it'll be challenged. But all oh, the glory. Remember, he says, henceforth, there's a crown of righteousness prepared. Now, let, let's, let's keep fighting. Let's keep running. One of the things I love about marathons is everybody along the way who's cheering, cheering them on. That's what the church is. We're next to each other. Stay at it. You can do it. You ever been in a race and come up on somebody who was just sucking air and like, very close to what looked like to you, cardiac arrest. You know, you pull up and like, come on, man, you can do it. A couple deep breaths, lengthen your stride. You'll make it. You'll make it. We're going we're gonna to all make it. That's what the church is about. Faith is a daring reliance on the promise of God that is yet to be realized. Here's what it's really like. Eric, what about those great people of faith? Didn't they realize everything? Here's what they realized. Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith. Yeah, I told you, Eric, they finished well. They died in faith. Not having received the promises. 
But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Assertion number three, there are some issues in life that will not resolve until after the resurrection. There was no resolution to this for Jarius until after the resurrection. And it didn't come to be resolved until Jesus got to the house, got to the room, and raised his daughter from the dead. Our hope is not in this life only, but will be realized in the life to come. There are deep streams of triumphalism in gospel Christianity in America. Come to Jesus. Everything will be wonderful. Come to Jesus. You never have any problems in life. Come to Jesus. He'll give us victory in Christ. Let's sing another round of victory in Jesus. That's a great song. But if you mistake the lyrics of victory in Jesus and the notion that Christ is a victor for what that means is in a broken world, I'll never have any problems. You are misunderstanding the nature of following Jesus in this old world, groaning and shaking, travailing as a woman in childbirth, waiting to be redeemed. Because growing out of that triumphalism is a lot. Hey, I'll believe as long as everything's fine. Well, what when it's not fine? You still believe. Jairus came to Christ, appealed to Christ, hoped in Christ, and then, you know what happened? She died. I've had the privilege through the years, from time to time, be a part of praying parties for people who were sick, from leaders in the church, anointing people with oil and crying out in our weakness for the Lord's healing strength. I remember we had such a sweet meeting with a lady. Her husband was not yet a follower of Jesus and he observed that whole thing, and he, to him it meant we were being kind to his wife and loved her, and he appreciated that, so he was in the room with us, and we talked to her, read James chapter 5, and the passage on anointing the sick and confessing our sins and believing God for a great thing, and then we anointed her with oil, and we sang a hymn, and I think there was a little weeping, and we left with joyful hearts believing God for a great thing. Next morning, she took a shower, and she found more lumps on her body. What do you do with that? She loved us so much, she didn't tell us right away. The next morning. That sounds like Jarius. The ambulance is headed to the house. It's like, what's wrong with God today? You ever thought of that? Oh, I know, we're too pious to ask those kind of questions. But isn't that the real stuff of believing God with carbide-tip faith in a broken world? But Jairus learned something. Death and disease don't get the last word. What are you facing this morning? Is it hard? Is it tough? Are you broken? Is it a disease? Christ is in the midst of the fog, of the confusion, of the difficulty. D.A. Carson said, I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. I love that. Martin Luther's 13-year-old daughter, Magdalene, contracted the plague 500 years ago. And he prayed before the Lord, Lord, I love her a lot, 
But good God, if your will is to take her, I will give her up with greatest pleasure. She died of the plague. They handled mortal remains differently in that day, and often fathers took care of it. As he nailed the lid to her coffin shut before burial, he screamed in his grief, Hammer away! On doomsday she'll rise again. Because he understood that there are some issues in life that will not resolve until after the resurrection. Jarius learned that death does not get the last word. Have you ever noticed how God is always playing the long game in some eternal sense? Bob Ledford was our buddy and our brother. I'm so grateful that the timing allowed me to get to know him before he was diagnosed with ALS and died. And as he was going down, I was talking to Bob and trying to understand in his quiet, certain faith how he was doing. I said, Bob, what are you thinking about this whole circumstance? ALS is a mess. He said this to me. I know that I have eternal life. The end is going to be tough. But after that, it will be the most wonderful experience and one that I've looked forward to since I received Jesus Christ into my life. I know what is before me. He counted on Christ as he waned. And Christ delivered Dick. And Bob went home to be with the Lord. Paul would say, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Where are you this morning? Childlike faith? Carbide tip? What is God developing in your heart and in mine? Thanks be to God for such a sufficient Savior. Father, thank you for Jesus. Lord, many times in life we feel closer to a consciousness of how difficult life is in a broken world rather than how sufficient our Savior is in the midst of our brokenness in this difficult world. I pray for those who are sick with disease. I pray for those who are discouraged with tough circumstances. I pray for those who are wandering like a zombie through the fog, holding on by their fingernails. Oh, Father. Most of us live right where that guy in the gospel was when he told you, I believe, help my unbelief. Thank you for such a great Savior. Grant that our hope in him would define who we are. Lord, you called out that woman. Do you want to call out men and women and boys and girls this morning who have not yet begun a relationship with you call them out right now be reconciled to God do you want to remind somebody in the fog that the Lord is near and that no broken experience in this world has the last word
Thanks be to God for what you've given us in Jesus Christ, our sufficient Lord. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing. Let's respond.